0: I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to 1 Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 15 is where we will be today. The title of our message is, The Church, a Gathering of Gospel Relationships. The Church, a Gathering of Gospel Relationships. I'll give you a moment to find that in your Bible. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Verses twelve through fifteen. We're going to begin by reading from God's Word. Just one more reminder: this is the Word of God. First Thessalonians chapter five, beginning in verse twelve. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Is the word of the Lord. Anybody like lighthouses? Anybody like them? Some of you probably collect them, maybe got, got the lighthouse figurines. I, I think lighthouses are awesome. What's the what's the purpose of a lighthouse? What, what's the purpose of it? I, I, maybe we could give that in a few different ways, but let me let me offer one suggestion. I think a lighthouse is a beacon of light which points ships away from the danger of a rocky coastline into the safety of a, of a harbor. It's a beacon of light that, that points ships, warns ships, to, to steer clear of a dangerous coastline and points them into the safety of a harbor. Now, I think you could say something similar about the people of God. The people of God gathered in the local churches are to serve as lighthouses, if you will, To the world around us, we are to be a beacon of gospel light which helps others escape, steer clear of the wrath of God, and instead find eternal safety in the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Now, it's true for us to say that we as individual Christians are lights in our world. I'm a light, you're a light. If you're a follower of Jesus, we are individual lights in our world. But more than individual lights, God's plan is that we would shine together as the church. Paul wrote to the Ephesians that through the church, not through him as an apostle, not through any of the other apostles or any other individual Christians, but he said through the church... God is making known His manifold wisdom. And if you look at it in the context, He's talking about His wisdom of salvation. The salvation that is by grace through faith in Jesus for all the different peoples of the world. God's making that wise plan of salvation known, not through just individual Christians, but through the church as a whole. The church is to be a beacon of gospel light to the world. Local churches are to be gospel lights to our world. But like a lighthouse... A church can only fulfill its mission of being a beacon of gospel light to the world if it's strong and if it's healthy and if it's in good working order. Just think about it. If you fail to maintain a lighthouse, well, it's going to to lead to that lighthouse eventually putting off less and less and less light. Whether it's because the light itself grows dim or or the structure itself begins to crumble, it's going to be less and less of a help to sailors sailing in the darkness. In a similar way, failure to strengthen the church will lead to it being less and less beneficial to people who are living in a world that is lost in darkness. Now, there's a difference, though, right, between a lighthouse and a church. A lighthouse is made of brick and mortar, right, or wood and metal. It's a physical structure, but not a church. A church is made up of people, Now, we may meet in a physical building, but that's not what a church is. If you you look at the word that's translated church in in the Bible, in the Greek, it's, it's literally, even more literal translation would be an assembly or a gathering. That's what the word church means. It has nothing to do with a building. It means a gathering of people, specifically people who are followers of Jesus, and so because a church is made of people, one of the most important ways a church can maintain and even strengthen its effectiveness in shining the gospel light brightly to a lost world, a world that's lost in darkness, is by pursuing right relationships with one another. If, if a church is is made of people, then it just makes sense that relationships are at the key to that church, at the, at the center of that church being a healthy church. A healthy church is filled with, Members who strengthen the church by the way they relate to leaders, members, and the world. That's what I want to learn today from First Thessalonians chapter five, verses twelve through fifteen. A healthy church is filled with members who strengthen the church by the way they relate to leaders, members, and the world. We'll see that in this passage today. Now, if you'll recall back up a little bit to chapter, um, earlier in chapter 5 of First Thessalonians, Paul's been describing believers in Jesus as children of light. I love that description of Christians. We are children of light. I love it because um, I know what it's like to live in darkness, and I don't ever want to live in darkness of sin. Um, I'm thankful that God has called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. But according to chapter 5 verse 9, children of light escape God's wrath because of salvation through Jesus. And in verse 11, Paul said that believers are to encourage one another and build one another up with these truths. And so Paul, when we closed out the section that we studied last week, Paul had on his mind the the believers in the church helping one another, encouraging one another, strengthening one another. Now as he begins to close out his letter, he gives this kind of long string of commands in verses 12 through verse 22. We're going to look at all of those today. We're just going to look through verse 15 today for this long string of commands. And while I think this is a new section of the letter, we can see by these commands that Paul still has on his mind what was on his mind in verse 11, the health of the church and the church and all the people in the church helping strengthen one another. As we bring our study of First Thessalonians to a conclusion over the next few weeks, my prayer is that we would learn ways to strengthen our church so that we will shine brighter and brighter as a beacon of warning and hope to a lost and dying world. That's my prayer. I hope that's your prayer as well. And so we begin with verses 12 through 15 where we see that a healthy church, a healthy church is to be a gathering of gospel relationships. Notice with me three ways today that you can strengthen the church by the way that you relate to. To the church. To others. Remember, the church is people. By the way, that you relate to the people in the church. The first one is this. Promote peace in the church by honoring your church leaders. Promote peace in the church by honoring your church leaders. Paul begins this section in verses 12 through 13 by simply instructing members to honor the leaders in the church. He says this. We ask you, brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, whenever we study the Bible, there's there's three, three, uh, three tips, three, uh, three steps, I should say, of, of real good Bible study. And uh, the first is observation. you got to see what's there. And so let's just take a minute and do some observation. Let's just see what is here. Paul gives two commands. He says to respect and esteem. Now, I'm just using the word honor to kind of summarize both of those. To respect, to esteem, to to honor them. The first word respect really is the word know. And it could be translated understand them or acknowledge them. A good way to think about what Paul is commanding there in that first command is to say that, that they are to understand the value of their leaders and should therefore, second command, esteem them or honor them. Lift them up. Respect them. But we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Paul directs his, uh, his attention here to a particular group within the church who are to, to be honored by giving a threefold description of the work that they do. It's interesting, he doesn't call them out by name, either by their actual name um, uh, or by the name of their position in the church. He simply describes what they do. He says, those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And that's the description of the work that he talks about in verse 13. Let's look at those three. To labor. What's that mean? Well, it simply means to work really hard. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a hidden meaning behind that, the word labor here. It, it means to work really, really hard. To be hard at work. Lots of people in the church do that. In fact, everyone in the church ought to be working hard for the Lord because He saved you by His grace and, and he, he's, he's given you a new heart and you want to live for Him. But there is a particular group who does a particular type of laboring in the church, of hard work in the church. And we get the specifics of that in the second and third descriptions. The second description says, And are over you in the Lord. That's an interesting phrase It could be translated that way. Um, it, it has behind it the, the idea of, of not, not being like a king and domineering. It has has the, the meaning of, of caring and, pr- and providing and protecting. And that, that's the kind of... Being over you in the Lord um, that that phrase is talking about to to be a leader, but to be a leader in such a way that there is care and provision that comes from that. And then the third uh, description, Paul describes this group um, to be honored as those who admonish you. This word admonish, it, it has the idea of warning, correcting, rebuking, teaching, instructing, those kinds of things, specifically warning, specifically warning. So we've, we've done a little bit of observation. We've seen what's there. Let's do some or interpretation, second step of Bible study. We want to see what's there. Then we want to ask the question, what's it mean? What, is, what, what do these verses mean? Some interpretation. Well, let's start with who Paul is talking about. In general terms, I think he's referring to leaders in the church. We could just say it very generally. But I think, I think he has a more specific group in mind, not just anybody who does any kind of leading in the church. But in specific terms, I think he's referring to those men who hold the office of elder or pastor or overseer. That's one office. The Bible uses three different words interchangeably to describe that one office. Often we use the word pastor. That's the least used word in Scripture. Overseer would probably be the second uh, word uh, that's used the most in Scripture. And then the word elder is the word that's used most often referred to this office in, in, uh, in the church. You see, as soon as Paul planted churches, he helped ensure that there were elders in every church who would provide spiritual oversight. In uh, Acts chapter 14, Paul finishes his first missionary journey where he planted a bunch of churches in the region of Galatia. And chapter 14, verse 23 says this. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. It's just a practice. Paul started a church. it needed some leaders to provide spiritual oversight to the church to do the teaching and, and, and correcting and, and rebuking and, and, and leading um, in the ways of the word of God. And so he appointed elders. And we can uh, assume that Paul did that with the church in Thessalonica. So he's probably speaking of those in this office here at the church of Thessalonica. But then I ask this question, what does an elder do? Well, we've seen a, a description there. we got those three descriptions. There's lots of other places in the New Testament describe the role of an elder and what they um, are supposed to do uh, in the church and their ways that they serve the church. Let me just give you a, maybe a summary statement. I'm not going to say this is the best definition of, of the role of an elder, but I think uh, this definition draws off of... Uh, Lots of places in Scripture, but primarily uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, what we see here. Let me give this definition. Those in the office of elder are tasked with working hard to lead the way in providing spiritual care and protection for the people of God by using God's Word to warn, correct, rebuke, and instruct the flock entrusted to them by Jesus. I'll say that one more time. Those in the office of the elder or pastor or overseer, whichever word you use there, are tasked with working hard to lead the way in providing spiritual care and protection for the people of God by using God's word to warn, correct, rebuke, and instruct the flock entrusted to them by Jesus. And here in this passage in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is helping the church know how to relate to those in the church who do this, who have this office, hold this office of elder. They are to honor them. Now, I said three steps in Bible study. Uh, we got interpretation. I mean, observation. See what's there. Interpretation. What's this mean? Um, and then application. How do we? What's this look like in in life? Well, let me let me first speak a word of application concerning the work of elders in a church. This is really a secondary issue here in First Thessalonians. Paul's primarily speaking to the rest of the church and how they relate to the elders. But I think this does provide an opportunity to look at the work of an elder for just a moment. And so I say this one for my own sake. Because as I read this, I learn and grow in how, and what I'm supposed to do as pastor here at this church. But I also say this for those who would aspire to serve our church or other churches in the future as elders. Three quick points here. One, the work of an elder is hard work. We see that from the word labor. It's laborious, it's not for the lazy and the half hearted. It is a work only for those called by God to the task. And it is a work which must flow from a deep love of God and his people and a deep desire to see the church of Christ strengthened and built up and accomplishing the cause of Christ in the world. If you don't love Jesus and you don't love the church, you're not going to love being an elder. It's hard work, but it's a privilege. It's a privilege to serve Jesus in that way. Second, we see that the work of an elder is one of servant leadership. That's not, I get that from that second phrase, who are over you in the Lord. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a work of servant leadership. It's a work of providing spiritual care and direction and protection for the flock and leading the way in that, but it's not one of domineering, for it is in the Lord. Notice that phrase there, in the Lord. Elders must be bold to lead the way, but they must do so in humble submission to Jesus, who is the chief shepherd. So it's really a work of leading and following at the same time, leading God's people as you follow Jesus. And then third, the work of an elder centers upon the word of God. I get this from that word admonish there. If the word admonish means to warn, kind of like that lighthouse, warns, warn of sin, warn of the wrong path, to lead in the right direction, to offer rebuke when that's needed, to offer correction, to offer instruction and teaching. Well, that's the specific task that is given to elders in God's word, the task of teaching The Word of God. And so how are the elders to admonish the church? Not with their own opinions, but with the Word of God. Not with what will please the ears of people, but with what proceeds from the mouth of God. Which means that an elder must love God's Word, be committed to intense study of God's Word, be willing to stand boldly upon God's Word no matter what anyone thinks, strive to live according to God's Word, and to work hard at offering warning, correction, rebuke, and instruction to people from God's Word. It's a work that is difficult, but very rewarding. It's a work that um, is one of leading and following, and it's a work that centers upon the word of God. But really, these verses are more about how the rest of the church should respond to the work of those in this position of leadership. So let me speak a quick word of application to everyone who's not an elder, which is most of the church. These verses are calling you to to what I think a great way to kind of summarize this is to an an affectionate appreciation, an affectionate appreciation of those who lead you in the church, specifically those who serve as elders. Verse 13 says, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. This is here's what that means. This is not a hard-hearted forced submission to your leaders, but a glad-hearted submission flowing from a deep appreciation for the work of an elder. Let me give you a couple other uh, places in Scripture where we see a very similar command. Chapter uh, 5, verse 17 of 1 uh, Timothy says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And then Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, I think it's interesting to note here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 13, that this is not a call to appreciate your leaders as much as uh, for who they, who they are, as much as for what they do. It's not focused really on the person itself. It's focused on the work that that person does. Remember that first command to know or understand or acknowledge or respect. It's really a call to understand the value of those who lead the church based on the type of work that they do. What type of work do they do? Well that's what I was explaining just a moment ago when I was thinking about application for elders, but let me summarize it once more. They labor in preaching and teaching the Word of God, which what's the benefit for you? It, it helps you protect it helps protect you from sin, which leads you closer to Jesus. What's better in life than being led closer to Jesus? So the work they do, the result of it, they do it well, helps to lead you closer to Jesus. Plus, their laboring and providing spiritual oversight and care and protection through preaching and teaching God's word protects the church as a whole from corrupt doctrine, and it keeps the church on course and glorifying Jesus by accomplishing the mission of Jesus. So here's what this means. If you love Jesus, and if you love the church, then you'll appreciate the work of those who lead the church. On the other hand, if you find yourself struggling to what this passage says, esteem very highly in love those who lead the church, it could be a symptom of a deeper problem, not so much as of not liking that person who's in that role, but it could result from a deeper problem of a lack of love for the church itself or a lack of love for Jesus. But then don't you to notice how Paul concludes verse 13. He says, be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. It almost sounds kind of like he just, tags on this kind of random command there at the end of verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. But I don't think think it's random. It could be a standalone command, but I think it's better seen as an extension of the command to honor church leaders. Just think about it for a moment. If church A is full of people who don't honor their leaders and church B is full of people who do honor their leaders, which church is going to be more peaceful? Which one's going to have just more peaceful relationships if you're just looking at those two things? Probably Church B, right? The church that does what this passage says and honors their leaders. Now, let me ask this question. Which church will shine the gospel more brightly to a lost world? Church B. A church whose members are at peace among themselves, not the church whose members are not at peace among themselves. There are a lot of things that go into living at peace among among yourselves as, as the church, but here Paul's specifically talking about one way that we can make sure we're living at peace, and that is in the way that the church um, uh, responds to the leaders that God has placed over that church. And so, what's Paul saying here? Well, I think he's saying this. Promote peace in the church by honoring your church leaders, and when you do, you'll be strengthening the church to shine brightly in the world. Now, let me just say this before we move on. I am full of thanksgiving to God, and I say that um, wholeheartedly. Um, Full of thanksgiving to God that he's allowed me to serve as an overseer or pastor and elder of a church here that practices what Paul instructs in verses 12 through 13. Um, Those verses would be much harder to preach (laughs) to our church if I didn't think that you were doing that. But because you're doing that, it's fun because it's kind of like you got this. You're doing well in it. Um, And so I just say that I'm humbled and grateful. Um, and, And you as a church set the bar high. Uh, when it comes to how you honor uh, me as your pastor, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, secondly, secondly, promote maturity in the church by actively engaging in the spiritual growth of fellow members. Another way that we can strengthen the church by the way we relate to others is to promote maturity in the church. First one, we're promoting peace by honoring church leaders. Now we want to promote maturity by actively engaging in the spiritual growth of fellow members we see this in verse 14 but i want you to again think back to verse 11 for just a moment remember what paul is saying in verse 11 he was calling all the believers in the church not just the leaders of the church but all believers to be engaged in the spiritual strengthening of fellow the leaders are to lead in this work of spiritual growth but they're not to do that alone Even here in verse 14, we have the word brothers. It's the word that Paul uses throughout, over and over throughout this letter, um, to refer to all the people in the church. He's not talking about just one group of people when he says brothers. He's talking about all of the church. He says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. This verse tells us three things that believers are to do, and it tells us how we are to do them. Three things believers are to do, and how we are to do them, here in verse 14. First, they're to admonish the idol. Well, that sounds just like what the leaders are doing back in uh, verse 12 and 13, right? That same word, admonish. We've already seen that that word, admonish, means to warn and correct. So this command is basically saying that believers in the church should should warn and correct people. Well, who are they to warn and correct? Well, that word idol. It might, that may might not be the best translation. It, probably could use the word um, unruly or um, undisciplined uh, there or 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 maybe disorderly. Those who are out of line. Literally, that means people who are out of line. And so to admonish means to warn. So what are what are we to do in the church? We're to help people who are out of line when it comes to following Jesus. Get back in line to following Jesus. Well, it could be that Paul is thinking back to chapter four verses 9 through 12, where he addressed those believers who were lacking love for their brothers and sisters in Christ by living in idleness, laziness, and and were taking advantage of the generosity of their fellow church members. If you'll remember that back in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. He could be thinking about those people because they were definitely out of line and he's already addressed them. But regardless of the specific unruliness he was referring to, he is calling all believers to be actively engaged. I picked those words intentionally actively engaged in helping their fellow believers get back to following Jesus when they begin to slip away. Church, you have permission. As a follower of Jesus, member of a local church, you have permission from God's word to admonish. A fellow brother or sister in Christ. We'll talk in just a minute uh, briefly about the right way to do that. But you have permission to help a brother or sister in Christ get back in line. If they're getting out of line when it comes to following Jesus. Here's what that also means church. Everyone else in the church has permission to admonish you. If you begin to get out of line in following Jesus. But here's the thing. I think this is one of the great advantages of belonging to a local church. Because if I am saved, then my greatest desire in life is to follow Jesus well. And I don't always do that well, but thank God he has put me in a, in, a, in a community of other believers who are trying to follow Jesus well, who will hopefully love me enough, but when they see me getting out of line when it comes to following Jesus, will help get me back in line. This is a great act of love to admonish the idle or the unruly or those who are out of Line. Second, believers are to encourage the faint-hearted. You see that there? And one way that we promote maturity is by encouraging the faint-hearted. What in the world does that mean? Well, there are apparently some in, Thessalon- in the Thessalonian church who uh, were discouraged. They were discouraged. We've seen this. They needed to be comforted and encouraged to keep going. It wasn't that they were wandering off into sin. It's just they were getting down. They, they, they needed somebody to come and just lift them up. Paul could be thinking about believers who were becoming discouraged because of the persecution that we read about back in chapter three, verse three, So there was affliction that was coming upon them. So some might have been discouraged because of that. He could be thinking about those who were discouraged because of their believing friends who had died before Jesus came back. Remember, he talked about that in chapter four, verses 13 through 18. Some they were they were beginning to mourn without hope, grieving without hope. And he had to encourage them. Maybe he's talking about those discouraged believers. He, ought, he, he could be thinking about um, those who might have been facing discouragement as they doubted the security of their own salvation. And Paul addressed that in chapter 5, uh, verses uh, really 1 through 11, specifically when he said there that God had destined them uh, not for wrath but to obtain salvation. That, was an, that would have been an encouragement for people in the church who may have been doubting whether, whether or not they were saved and what was going to come uh, upon them when Christ returned. But regardless of uh, the exact reason for their discouragement, there were believers who needed to be encouraged. And Paul says it's the job of all the believers to be actively engaged in providing that encouragement. Third, it says that they're to help the weak. See that there? All believers are to help the weak. One of the ways we promote maturity is by helping the weak. Again, what's, what's that talking about? Well, we don't know the exact situation Paul is referring to. Perhaps he meant the physically weak. Maybe, maybe there were some physically weak, some sick, and, and he was saying to the, the, the help them out. More likely, though, he means the spiritually weak. That would make more sense in the context. And other places in Scripture use the word weak in a physical sense to describe people who are, who are Christians but who are spiritually weak. Maybe we could say spiritually immature. It could be that he's thinking back to his words in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, where he issued a call to live in purity. There were likely some in the church in Thessalonica who were weak when it came to resisting immorality and pursuing holiness and godliness in their lives. They were weak in that area of their life, which is why he wrote what he did back in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Paul calls on believers to help those who are struggling to resist temptation, who are spiritually weak. The word "help" here literally means to hold on to them and support them. I, I like that. To come alongside them, grab hold of them—maybe uh, not literally, but grab hold of them and help them, help help move them from immaturity to maturity, from spiritual weakness to spiritual strength, from from struggling really hard to resist temptation to 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 overcoming sin in their life, and and and. And easily saying no to that temptation. We're to come alongside one another and help one another in that. Church, this verse is calling each one of you as believers to be actively engaged in holding on to your fellow believers when they face the storms of temptation. And help them stand strong in saying no to the ways of the world and saying yes to the ways of God. We can summarize all three of these commands by simply saying that this is a call for all members of the church to be actively engaged in the spiritual growth of fellow members. Paul says something similar to the Galatian churches. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, he says this. Brothers, talking to the church. If anyone is caught in any transgression, that would really line up with that spiritually weak phrase. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so here's what Paul is saying. Church, while you honor your church leaders, don't look for the work that they do in leading out in this. Don't leave the work of admonishing and encouraging and helping your fellow believers to the leaders of the church. We're all to be involved in helping one another grow. Again, Paul wrote to the Ephesians that pastors are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, not that they're to do the ministry all by themselves. Think about like a football team, right? Think about like a football team. The coach uh, is the leader, right? The coach is the leader. If there's somebody out there that's leading, it's, it's the coach. And the coach leads the way in keeping players in line and encouraging them and helping them get better. But here's the thing. He needs all of his players to be engaged in that work as well. A healthy team is not one where the coach just does all of that and the players just stand there and do nothing. A healthy team is one where the players keep one another in line and encourage one another to keep going when the game gets tough. And they help one another. They help the weaker members of the team. And so just like that football team needs to have an all-hands-on-deck approach to be the healthiest team they can, listen, the church has to have an all-hands-on-deck to be the healthiest church we can be. But then I want you to notice how Paul ends verse 14. He gives the manner in which believers are to do these things. He says there's a right way and a wrong way to admonish the idle. There's a right way and a wrong way to encourage the faint hearted. There's a right way and a wrong way to help the weak. Notice what he says. He says, be patient with them all. Who are we to be patient with? Well, the idle, the the unruly, the the discouraged, the faint hearted, the, the weak, the immature. When it comes to helping someone grow and mature, patience is definitely a requirement. Can I get an amen from all of our parents and grandparents who help take care of children and help them grow, right? Just like it takes a lot of patience to help a child mature into an adult. Lots of patience, right? Lots of patience. It takes a lot of patience to help a believer grow into spiritual maturity. It does. It takes a lot of patience. Just think about your own life as a, as a, as a believer. I mean, did you just get saved and the next day you're just following Jesus perfectly? No. There have been people who have been very patient with me as, I, as I've grown in my walk in the, in the Lord. So I need to be patient with others who are growing as well. The word patience is perhaps better translated long-suffering. So The Bible often uses the word patience when it comes to difficult situations. It uses the word long-suffering when it comes to difficult relationships. Here we're not talking about situation as much as we're talking about relationships. To be long-suffering A fellow believer may take longer than we expect to get back in line. A fellow believer may take longer than we would expect to come out of that spiritual discouragement. A fellow believer may take longer than we would expect to grow in overcoming a particular temptation and becoming strong rather than weak in that area of his or her life. But we shouldn't be harsh or impatient. You know what? Instead, we ought to take our cues from God himself. Who's the most patient one of all? God. I think about what, how God is described in Exodus 34, 6. He's described as being slow to anger. And that then translates into the life of a believer. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, uh, patience is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, patience is a part of the definition of love. Right? Love is patience. And so we patiently admonish and patiently encourage and patiently help our brothers and sisters in Christ. So let me just do a little application real quick. Do you know a fellow member who's out of line? Gently confront that person and patiently help him get back in line by showing him from scripture how his life is not lining up with the commands of God's word. Pray for him. Help him return to the Lord in that area of his life. Do you know a fellow member who is weighed down by, by life in a broken world and it's just hard and they're discouraged? Well, You can go to that person and encourage her or encourage him by sharing comforting words from Scripture and praying with that person, patiently walking alongside that person in their discouragement. Do you know a fellow member who's finding it hard to overcome temptation or to obey God's call on their life? Well, let that person know you're there to help. You're going to hold on to that person. You're there to help. You're not going to beat them down. You're going to help them. You're going to help them grow strong in their faith. You're going to use scripture and prayer and encouragement to, and gentle rebuke and patient teaching to help that person grow spiritually, grow spiritually strong. Now, let's step back for a moment and look at this verse as it relates to the mission of God, kind of a, a bigger picture uh, view of this. Why would God want all hands on deck when it comes to promoting spiritual maturity? Why would He want that? Why would Paul, Paul write this? Well... Because the more people there are promoting spiritual maturity, guess what? The more spiritually mature that church will be. And the more spiritually mature the church is, the more committed to and more effective that church will be in shining the gospel light brightly. So listen to this, Christian. Your light shines brighter when your fellow Christian's light shines brighter. If you're concerned about the mission of God and the lost around you being rescued from darkness, and I hope that you are concerned about that, then not only will you strive to grow in your own walk with the Lord, in your own spiritual maturity, but you'll be actively engaged in helping those around you, those believers around you, grow in their walk with the Lord, in their spiritual maturity, so that the light of the church can shine brighter and brighter and brighter to a lost world around us. And so promote maturity in the church by actively engaging in the spiritual growth of fellow members. And when you do that, you'll be strengthening the church to shine brightly in the world. But Paul gives one more way, one more way that we can help strengthen the church. We see this in verse 15. Promote Jesus in the church. Number three, promote Jesus in the church by responding with benevolence rather than retaliation. Promote Jesus in the church by responding with benevolence rather than Rather than retaliation. I'm not trying to use big words just to use big words. I think these words help us understand what Paul is saying here. Now, we don't use the word benevolence a lot, maybe not as much as we used to, but it it simply means to have a disposition to do good to someone. That's what it means. To to, to be benevolent means that you do good to another person. You don't just think good thoughts about them or come up with great ideas about how you could bless them, but you actually take the step of doing something good for them. You try to act in a way that benefits others. Notice Paul's, what I'm going to say is a shocking statement in verse 15, at least if you read this from the perspective of the world. From a worldly perspective, this is a shocking statement in verse 15. He says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. The first part tells tells us what we're not to do. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. The word for that is retaliation. To get back at someone. To repay evil for evil. The second part of the verse tells us what we are to do. Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And this is what I'm calling benevolence. Always be benevolent. Always have this disposition to do good to the other person. And according to this verse, regardless of how that person has treated you, specifically, even if that person has treated you with evil intention, you are to do good to that person. What makes the statement shocking is not that we're to be benevolent, but that we're to be benevolent to those who would harm us. Benevolent behavior is not shocking when you're benevolent to someone who deserves it, right? Somebody does something good for you. Well, it makes sense that you do something good for them. That's not shocking to the world. But that's not what this is saying. What doesn't make sense to the human mind is to do something good to someone who's tried to harm us. The world says retaliate. Give them what they deserve. If they call us a name, we call them a name. If they take from us, we take from them. If they hurt us, we hurt them. If they slander us, we slander them. The problem with this type of reaction when it comes to believers in Christ is that we don't belong to the world. We don't. We're set apart. We've been redeemed from the ways of the world. And here's the thing. Jesus completely redefines how we are to respond to those who treat us with evil intention. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 44. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Here's the thing. Jesus didn't just use His words to redefine how we are to respond to those who harm us. He also used His actions. He used His actions by quietly going to the cross to die and to be crucified for those who were mistreating Him. We find these amazing words in 1 Peter chapter 2. For to to this you have been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, notice this, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You see, Jesus not only set an example of how to respond to those who would mistreat us, But He took our sin and gave us His righteousness. So when we look to Christ, we not only know how we are to respond to those who treat us with evil intentions, we have the ability to respond benevolently towards those who treat us with evil intentions. Because of Jesus, our wicked hearts that are set on repaying evil for evil have been changed and transformed. This verse says they've been healed by His wounds. You have been healed listen if you've never trusted in jesus christ for salvation then you haven't been healed from sin and if that's you today then i encourage you to believe in jesus for salvation that's the only way your sin sick heart can be healed if you have questions about believing in jesus i'd be glad to talk with you after the service but listen church if you have believed in jesus then you are to act like him in doing good to those who mistreat you who are we to treat this way Well, everyone. Verse 15 says, one another, which means your fellow believers in Christ, which also implies that sometimes your fellow believers in Christ will harm you, will mistreat you. That's going to happen in the church. It's going to happen when there's relationships. But that doesn't give us the right to repay evil for evil. We continue to do good. But notice what he tags on there at the end. And to everyone, to the whole world. It matters how we relate to everyone in the world, regardless of who it is that hurts us. We are not to retaliate. We are not to seek to carry out vengeance against them. But we don't just choose not to retaliate. We seek to do good to them. Church, this is nothing less than a call to live out the gospel of Jesus. When we live this way in our relationships with one another and with the world around us, we give evidence that our lives have been transformed by the one who worked for the eternal good of those who hated him. And when we live this way, we shine a spotlight on the saving work of Christ who died for us, who mistreat Him through our sin so that we would be forgiven. And when we live this way, we are promoting Jesus. And when Jesus is promoted, we are shining brightly the hope of the gospel to a watching world. And so, church, let's promote Jesus by responding with benevolence rather than retaliation. And when we do that, we will be strengthening the church to shine brightly in a lost world. A lighthouse is only effective in warning and guiding sailors lost in the dark if it's strong and if it's in good working order. And the same is true for us, church. We have a mission to warn and guide lost sinners to the Savior. And so we need to make sure we are strong and healthy as the body of Christ. And striving for God-honoring relationships is one of the ways, not the only way, but it's one of the ways that we as a church stay strong and healthy. Relationships matter in the church, and therefore relationships matter in the mission of God. Our relationships either help or hinder. Our relationships, your relationships with those in the church, either help or hinder our participation in the mission of God, which is seeing sinners be rescued from hell and given eternal life in heaven. It matters. We are children of light. We are to be shining brightly. So church, let's make sure our relationships are helping, not hindering us as we seek to shine the light of Christ brightly to a dark world around us. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we want to put these words into action. Father, however it is that you want us as individuals to obey these verses that we have studied today, Father, help us to be obedient. God maybe there's some resentment in someone's heart towards those who do the work of of leading the church and you want to bring them out of that resentment. Father, maybe there's some relationships in the church that aren't what they're supposed to be. Father maybe there needs to be some repentance and forgiveness. Some apologies. Father, maybe there's been some repaying evil for evil instead of doing what is good, regardless of what the other person has done. Father, maybe there's just some laziness on our part in helping one another become more spiritually mature. God, maybe there's some some thoughts of I can't do that. I'm not I don't know the Bible enough. just some 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 lack of lack of assurance and 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 their ability to help but father. You have you put your Holy Spirit in us, and Lord, every one of us has the ability to help one another grow in our walks with the Lord. So, Father, I just pray that this would we would we would be a church where our relationships help instead of hinder the gospel light going out from our church to a lost and dark world. Father, would you help us in that?